Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we are here with Ms. Bev Shetman, Vice President of the Doctor Patient Forum, also known as Don't Punish Pain. Bev has been living with Crohn's disease and psoriatic arthritis for over two decades. She became a patient advocate after being denied opioid medications while hospitalized for kidney stones in 2017. She was denied due to being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Bev is now a passionate advocate for people with chronic pain and illnesses, as well as those who have survived sexual abuse and assault. And so with that, I'd like to welcome Ms. Sekman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, thank you for having me. In your own words, can you tell us your journey from patient to patient advocate and what you learned along the way? Sure. So, um, like you said, I have had Crohn's disease uh, for several decades, um, and I was in and out of the hospital a lot, as is somewhat typical with Crohn's. Um, that situation, I was hospitalized for kidney stones. Uh, kidney stones are somewhat common with Crohn's disease also. And I, I was passing kidney stones um, sometimes several times a month. I, I always did it at home um, if I could. And then if I was vomiting or if I felt like I had an infection, I would go to the hospital um, is what my doctor told me to do. And then they would admit me for pain control or nausea control. Um, and that's exactly what happened um, in November of 2017. I had been diagnosed like, I guess, a few days prior uh, with, with kidney stones, with scans and stuff. And um, I wasn't, I did have, I had oxycodone at home. I had uh, pain medication. I was not able to keep them down. Um, I was vomiting a lot. And also I felt like I might've had a kidney infection and I've had, um, I've been septic before from kidney infections. So I, I, I don't like to wait if I feel like I do have one. So I went to the uh, emergency room here and the ER doctor, she was great. She did what they normally do. And she, um, you know, did testing and whatever was treating my pain and nausea. And she saw I was still throwing up. So she said that she wanted to admit me for pain control. I typically pass kidney stones, um, sometimes a few days, but within a week of first being diagnosed. And um, so they admitted me. And when my, uh, when the hospitalist came in, cause that's how they do it. They have hospitalists come in to talk to you when they're admitting you. And um, immediately when he walked in, he didn't introduce himself. He just said to me, um, I looked in your prescription drug database and I saw that you've gotten out of van pretty regularly. I'd like to know why. And it was kind of odd to me. So I was like, well, um, it has nothing to do with why I'm here. And he pressed and said, well, I need to know what it's from. And I said, well, it's from PTSD. And he continued to press saying PTSD for what? And I said, for childhood trauma. And he said, I need to know exactly what. And I said, it was for childhood sexual abuse. Now I was in my forties a few years ago. I mean, I'm still in my forties now, but I, you know, the abuse happened in my teens. So, um, he then immediately said to me, due to your uh, childhood abuse, I cannot give you any IV pain medication. Childhood abuse affects, um, it changes your brain as does IV opioids. And I can't be a part of that. Plus you're higher risk of addiction. And someday you'll thank me. Um, now through this whole time, I'm like throwing up. I'm in agony. I didn't know what to do. I was actually kind of floored. I just, I didn't know why he was saying that. I was extremely confused. You know, the climate was already getting, because uh, the, the guidelines had come out the year before, it was already getting to where pain patients are often looked at as drug seekers. And because of that, I brought my bottle of pain medication in to show him um, that I wasn't asking for a prescription for home. I just needed to be treated while I was there. I mean, and it didn't help me at all. And so he said to me, uh, he'd admit me and he made a deal with me. He said, if 
if I uh, agree to it, he'll give me like a little extra dose of oxycodone. And if it didn't help, I was still in pain. They do what needed to be done to get me out of pain. So, I mean, I felt somewhat okay with that. I was still annoyed, but they admitted me. And the next 24 hours were the worst nightmare. And I'd spent, you know, with Crohn's before biologics, sometimes I'd be in the hospital for six weeks at a time. So I had a lot of experience in the hospital. I had never been treated like that before though. Um, the next 24 hours were, were horrific. Um, I was crying in the middle of the night. The nurses kept chastising me to stop being so dramatic. Um, I asked to see the, the night doctor. She came in and this is when I knew something was odd with what they were writing in my records. Cause she said, um, you're here for Crohn's, right? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, what are you here for? And I said, kidney stones. And she's like, well, okay, of course I'm gonna give you what you need. You have kidney stones. Um, and I, I said, there's scans that show it. Oh, the part I forgot to tell you is in the ER, I said to the hospitalist, why don't you do a talk screen to see that I'm not like, I don't have what I, that I have what I'm supposed to. And he yeah. said, we already did that before we walked, before I walked in here. And um, we saw that you had what you're supposed to. So I did ask him some questions like, do you think I'm drug seeking? He said, no. I said, do you think I'm lying? He said, we know you're not. We have your scans. Um, he said the entire issue was that I was sexually abused as a child. So the night doctor came in, she's going to give me pain medication. Uh, she left, something happened, obviously. Well, now I know she looked at my records because I've gotten them since then. And the nurse came in and said, she changed her mind. You can't get anything. And so uh, the next morning at seven o'clock, uh, a new hospitalist came in. It is a teaching hospital. There were several, um, maybe four or five residents or students with, with him. He was an older doctor and he was way worse than the guy who admitted me. I mean, he was horrific. Like he was just mocking me and laughing at me and, and making me feel like I was crazy. And um, he said, you know, we know that you've been in the hospital a lot and that you always get pain medication and you think you're tricking us. And I was like, what are you even talking about? You have the scans that show that there's multiple kidney stones in my ureter. Like, I'm not really sure what the problem is. And then he's like, well, we don't even use opioids for kidney stones anymore. We use NSAIDs. And I was like, well, I mean, that's not fully true. I, I've been given both before, but I can't take it. Um, unless I absolutely have to, because I have Crohn's disease. I mean, everyone knows that you're not supposed to. And he was like, well, that's not true. You're lying to me. That's drug seeking behavior. And so I said, you know, I'm, I just need to go home. And he's like, well, that's finally something we agree on. And wow. so he gave me the whole, yeah, he gave me the whole spiel. If I, if I was in worse pain at home to come back. So I said, I would rather die at home than come back to this hospital. And then he immediately said, I was lucky he didn't hold me for suicidal ideation. Um, and that's the first time I called Claudia. I had seen her on Facebook talking about this and, and I called her from the hospital bed and we've been working together since then. Wow. And uh, Claudia is the founder of the Dr. Patient Forum, uh, the Don't Punish Pain Rally. And she's been instrumental in uh, helping you find a voice and really turning yep. your experience into expertise. I just, I, I can't get over that phrase. Someday you will thank me. Yeah. I don't know. He actually that, hit me on the shoulder when he said it too, as though we're like old time pals. Yeah. That, it, I, it I, I can't imagine a statement more disingenuous and more disconnected mm -hmm. from the realities of what patients are facing than yes. saying something like that to a patient in acute pain. Yes. It's a, it, it's a, it's a reflection of the state of mind that healthcare has found itself in. And from your perspective, now flash forwarding to the future, to the present, and looking into the future, what insights 
can you glean from the stories you've heard, from your own story, from doctor-patient forum stories coming at you left and right? What are you hearing in the stories and these literal cries for help for patients with chronic pain? I mean, the stories are horrific and they're getting worse um, all day long. We just are hearing from patients, several different categories, um, mostly being medically abandoned now. You know, yeah. it's not just, I can't find a doctor to prescribe. It's, I can't find a doctor to take me with chronic pain. Most primary cares that we call will not accept a patient who has chronic pain. Um, this is one of the biggest issues that I have a, a problem with in our country is that whether a doctor retires because they don't want to deal with the red tape or they're taken out by the DEA or they get their medical uh, license taken by the medical board, whatever reason, uh, we have, I mean, so many thousands I would definitely say into hundreds of thousands of abandoned patients, if not in the millions in this country, and they have nowhere to go, no one to take them, and nobody's doing anything about it. We have so many billions of dollars in settlement funds and federal funding and state funding to go to so-called help this uh, so-called opioid crisis. But I have, for four years, I have begged every government agency, and I, I really berate them. Like I first started to call to ask for help. Sorry. Your dog is also joining you in the cause. So I, I, I can yeah, see he it's is. a family he effort. He hears this every day. Um, <laughs> but I have begged them in, in my state, uh, begged to go on the opioid task force and, and nobody is willing uh, to do anything for these pain patients. They don't care about continuity of care. They say they do for Suboxone patients, but even when a doctor gets taken out by Suboxone patients, they really don't seem to care uh, to find people, uh, doctors for these people. So you have all these abandoned patients and then they applaud themselves about taking out these horrible drug dealers as they call doctors, but nobody's addressing the issues of all of these patients. And, you know, one of the stories we hear over and over and over is these people, even into their eighties who are going to the street for pain medication. And so that's why we're working on harm reduction, um, adding things on our website, like how to access illicit fentanyl testing strips, how to get Narcan, all of that stuff. Um, but, but I honestly think, Jay, like if our country had done nothing, nothing, it would be better than what they've done with all that money that they've had. It, it, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, it, it's amazing how the redistribution of wealth does little to actually help patient outcomes. You Absolutely. have you have been instrumental in addressing misinformations and outright falsehoods in yeah. this public perception of the opiate epidemic. I wanna get into that, into all the detail that you've researched. But before we jump into the details, I wanna look broad picture. And okay. for the listening audience, what is the healthcare community missing about the opiate epidemic? And what is the public at large missing why is it so difficult for them to understand the lived experiences of patients with chronic pain, with substance use dependency? Yeah, I don't really blame people um, so much. I do think if you ask the average person what's causing this so-called crisis, why are people dying? I, I do believe the vast majority would say prescription opioids. Um, I mean, my state, everything they've done to um, like educate people has all been about prescription opioids. You see media articles where they talk about fent illicit fentanyl, but then you have prescription bottles there. You have so many groups that are attack attacking prescription pain medications. So, uh, you know, they put these narratives out there where they, they made it sound like all doctors 
are drug dealers and, and opioids just don't work for pain. So of course, any pain patient who's asking for them must be drug seeking. Uh, so I don't really blame the people out there, um, but that's why we're trying to get information out there because you know, this is not about prescription drugs at this point at all. Like this is completely about uh, illicit fentanyl on the streets that's in everything and everything they're doing is opening up that black market just wide open. And I wish people would understand that this isn't about prescription opioids. It's just not. Our prescribing level is down to, I think, 1993 level. Uh, so how they can, like pre-Oxycontin, so how they continue to blame prescription opioids, they blame pain patients and they blame pain doctors. I just wish people would know that all of that is it's false. It, it's interesting because you are alluding to the opiate epidemic or rather the overdose crisis, yeah. as I should say, evolving right before our eyes. So yeah. what happened in 2016 is not what's going on in 2021. Uh, can you now, with all the work that you've done in researching this litigation narrative around the overdose crisis. Can you now go yeah. to the start and to the present and just detail out the genesis of how this really came about? So there's several different aspects of what we call the litigation narrative. Um, there's the aspect of uh, prescription opioids caused it and are continuing to cause it. And then um, there's the aspect of how they were able to just shoot down any, any uh, advocates and advocacy organizations that tried to express any concern. Um, I mean, the, the, the first thing I mentioned, I, I, as early as 2003, um, there were articles saying OxyContin was causing um, an, a, a crisis. But the, the thing I've been researching more recently is this idea of um, how come they've never listened to advocates and pain organizations, cancer society, anything? Like, how come nobody cares what they have to say? And instead, they listen to this core group of maybe 15 to 20 people. Um, and, you know, anytime you see in the media anything about an organization or pain advocates who are fighting for rights, they always say the same thing, always. And it always is that we are industry funded, meaning we are paid by pharma to, um, you know, by the opioid lobby to fight. Patients, um, with, patients with chronic pain who are, uh, chronic pain that are speaking out. They're, they're industry yeah, funded, apparently. Yeah, patients and any kind of organizations, any doctors, all of us, we're all just industry funded. We're paid to do it, to sell more drugs. Um, and that's what they've always said. So I wanted to find out where that started and how it started. And, you know, the earliest I could find was back in 2008, University of Wisconsin Pain Group released a publication called um, Responsible Opioid Prescribing, and it was like a, a, a physician's guide to. And immediately after that, um, in, in Wisconsin, there were article after article after article saying those people were industry funded. I guess they took money from pharma and they said that was the whole reason for their publication. And, and you have like Roger Chow and, and Andrew Kaladny, who are two of those main 20 I named, talking all the way back then um, about it. And then the next thing, you know, well, 2007 was the Purdue case, right? So that happened, the first settlement. Um, so that happened in 2008. And then in 2011... Wait, I'm sorry, Bev. Uh, I, I apologize. Let me just uh, <laughs> clarify this. So yeah. in, in 2007, 
was yeah. the first litigation against an opioid manufacturer. That I can find, um, okay. it, it was the earliest. There was another one right after, I think it was for a drug called Actique, Cephalon or how you pronounce it. Um, there was another settlement there. Uh, okay. But these series of, of articles in Wisconsin um, preceded a, a huge settlement with Wisconsin um, for pharmaceutical, for, for opioid litigation also. So I don't know if that was the purpose of these, um, these articles or not. But uh, then in 2011, part of the Affordable Care Act was a directive to write a manual about pain management, about better pain management and how to address the growing uh, pain crisis in our country. And Sean Matthew was on that. Um, uh, um, I think Roger Chow was even involved. Michael Von Korf, who's with Prop, was involved. Immediately after that came out, it was the same thing. Article after article after article saying they were paid by industry. They investigated everyone who, who participated. Anyone who had ever taken money from pharma um, was blamed because they really didn't address opioids that much in that uh, publication because it wasn't their directive to you. They were told to discuss pain management, um, not about opioid prescribing, but that didn't, it doesn't matter. They still got ripped apart in media. And the same people, um, Andrew Kaladny, Roger Chow, um, there's another uh, person, Lewis Nelson, um, who just, Jane Valentine, all of the same people, you can see article after article where they cited this 2008 publication and this 2011 publication as industry funded uh, publications that were used to sell opioids. So let me, um, before we continue into yeah. the 2016 years onward, I wanna just summarize to make sure I understand properly. Yep. Starting in 2007 and 2008, the playbook was already being formulated whereby you would repeat a narrative that anybody who is an advocate for opioids as one of many potential treatment options for pain was industry funded. And those articles written by a core group of physicians and policymakers would coincide litigation around opioids, either in that region or somehow related to opioid litigation, be it the same patient population or the same healthcare organization. And that happened initially in 2007, 2008, and then it was repeated in 2011. And by yes. that time, there was a core group of individuals and those individuals were essentially the mouthpieces to one, decry anybody who advocated for opioids and the therapeutic purpose, and two, essentially perpetuate this narrative that through litigation, we can resolve the pain crisis and the dependency crisis that comes from abusing pain medications. Yes, that is exactly what it was. And that was 2011 is when Prop Physicians uh, for Responsible Opioid Prescribing was started uh, by Kaladny and Valentine. Uh, they had Anna Lemke, Michael Von Korf, all the big, Gary Franklin, all the big people that still speak out against it. Um, and these articles where they named uh, these publications as being industry funded also named 
prop as uh, the group that's going to solve the opioid crisis in our country. So they were being really um, put out there as heroes and that they were doing this noble thing, this noble effort um, in 2011. And um, so I don't, I don't know how he got media out there to uh, put, to say this over and over again. I just know that he did. And these series of articles actually led to a Senate investigation into pain organizations and funding from phar pharmaceutical companies. Um, that was in 2012. It was an investigation by Grassley and Baucus. And both, both senators. One both is senators. from Iowa. Yep. Right, okay. Yeah, it was a Senate investigation. Um, and then for the next few years, you don't hear a whole lot about the investigation um, in, that, in that time frame. also. Um, two huge, um, really anti-opioid organizations that Andrew Kolodny is part of, and I believe started, um, was fed up. Uh, and then Rumler Hope, and then Shatterproof with Gary Mendel. Those all started around 2011, 2012. Um, and then, you know, there's other things that happened like in 2012 uh, prop, which a with a bunch of signatures sent a petition to the FDA to change the labeling of um, opioids. I think it was to make them only be able to be used for anyone with like end of like cancer pain. But a lot of those kind of things happened in that, in that time frame. And then in 2015, when the guidelines were being written, I think, the Back CDC guidelines. Yeah, the CDC guidelines were being worked on, but I don't know that any pain organization knew about it at that point. There was a letter from FedUp uh, with 36 signatures, Andrew Kolodny, Gary Mendel, uh, Ballantyne, Lewis Nelson. Um, I think I counted five who ended up being expert witnesses in, in opioid litigation. They demanded, I mean demanded from Senate to release the report from that investigation from 2012. And they even said in articles, Kaladni actually said, we need you to release it before the CDC guidelines are published because we know pain organizations are going to fight them and we need the media to understand. The only reason they're fighting them is because, I mean, you could guess, of industry funding. You know, right. so that's what they said. And and it was, I was looking this morning, I mean, it was picked up everywhere, that story, article after article after article that said the Senate dropped the ball and this group is trying to fix the crisis and all of this information. Well, they didn't release the report for whatever reason, they didn't. Uh, but the CDC guidelines at that time um, were delayed by, I believe, 30 days because of several things. The biggest one is they didn't allow adequate time to comment. Um, they were done in a secretive fashion, even though Andrew Kaladny says it's not true. Um, prop members were involved with writing this. And there was like a fact of violation, uh, Federal Advisory Committee Act, where they had to have a certain oversight that they didn't have. And so, it was delayed by 30 days and then it opened up a, I believe a 48 hour comment period or something crazy like that. And then they were published and you could guess after they were published, um, there was a series of, of, of articles, three specifically that said, CDC guidelines were delayed due to opioid uh, policy, like uh, lobbying due to pharmaceutical industry paying organizations 
to delay the process. Now, if you go back and look at, at the letters that these organizations wrote, it's very interesting now that the CDC has admitted to harm being caused, because really you have people saying the exact same thing that happened. You have organizations saying, this harsh threshold limit is going to hurt people. Pharmaceutical, uh, like uh, payers, insurance companies are going to start denying um, prescriptions. State laws are going to be made off of this. You're going to end up hurting all kinds of people, including cancer patients. And in the media, they mocked it actually. They said, isn't it, basically like they're being paid to say that that's ridiculous. None of that could ever happen. These are benign, mild guidelines um, that couldn't hurt anybody. So that was 2016. Wait, so Beth, before we move forward, and I apologize for interrupting you. Uh, yeah, no problem. I, I just find this so interesting that this contains all the fundamental elements of propaganda, you know, deriding Absolutely. your opponent, repeating the narrative until it becomes the truth. For uh, yeah. people who may not understand how the CDC even got involved and how it basically went from zero to 100 in terms of the politicization of the issue, can you briefly talk yeah. about how the CDC even got involved in drafting the guidelines in 2015 and then publishing them in 2016? Sure. So, um Andrew Kolodny, Tom Frieden, who was in charge of the CDC, I think he he was there in 2010. Um, in 2000, he worked with Andrew Kolodny had worked for him in the past in New York City. So they were co-workers. They obviously knew each other. 2011, Frieden um, declares it like a national crisis or epidemic, whichever he said, whatever it was he needed to do to release a bunch of funding and really started talking about this prescription drug crisis. Um, it. it they spoke about it before there even was that much of an increase of overdoses at all, which to me is kind of interesting. They were making a crisis out of something that didn't exist. The concept of overprescribing is like in a threshold. What do you consider overprescribing? Uh, were some doctors too liberal? I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but you know, they just needed to push this idea. And so that's what uh, Frieden did in 2011. And then we obviously think that that Kolodny obviously was involved since he and Frieden knew each other behind the scenes. He, he says that's a false narrative and a myth, but I believe that that's what happened, that prop went to them. And we know that like Gary Mendel, founder of Shatterproof, who, who Kolodny's on his board and Judy Rumler, um, Kolodny's on, on Fed Up also. We know they were very involved. If you look at the comments, they, they specifically invited people who they knew agreed with their, their, uh, their view. And even like Gary Mandel was actually asked to review them specifically. And he's like a hotel entrepreneur whose son died by suicide, which is very sad after dealing with um, addiction. Sorry but you had, yeah, you have people who, they weren't medical doctors. They don't know anything about medicine, but their children died. And so they are, they're asked to comment on uh, prescription guidelines. So that's, you know, if, if you go back, if, if you want to see um, on the CDC, if you look up the Board of Scientific Counselors, which is kind of the oversight group, and you look at their archived minutes, um, anytime they discuss the CDC guidelines and what open to comment, it really was very, very few pain patients or pain advocates. It was almost all 
uh, people like Kalani and then parents who lost kids, um, sadly, to some form of overdose. Uh, so, you know, you hear Kalani saying it's a myth that they were written in secret. It's a myth that Prop was involved, but neither of those things are a myth. Was Prop involved with the actual writing of it? Not officially, but they were part of like the secret core expert group. They were part of the stakeholder review group. They had their hands in it um, all along the way. You have a lot of Prop members who did. Um, and not to mention Roger Chow's, who is one of the main authors, his significant conflicts of interest, which at this point, it's actually comical that he was involved in every aspect of it. Um, but, but just, yeah, that's how it, we don't know specifically that Kaladni went to Frieden or Frieden went to Kaladni, but it was definitely a lot of behind the scenes uh, working. And they did it based on statistics of amount of deaths that they say were caused by prescription opioids. Um, there was one year they said it was 34,000. Then they came out a few years after the guidelines and said, oops, we messed up. It's not 34,000, it's about 17,000 because we counted illicit fentanyl deaths in prescriptions. But even that 17,000, Jay, like these are not these are not people who died because of prescription opioids. These are people who died with prescription opioids yep. and any other drug in their system. Most deaths are polypharmacy, but but they don't even count prescription opioid deaths that are just prescription opioids alone. So no one even knows how many. I mean, I believe all of that was, was deliberate to push through. They needed these guidelines for litigation. Uh, that CD, that crop petition in 2012 is in all the litigation as evidence, CDC guidelines, evidence. I believe all these things were written in order to push through litigation uh, narrative for sure. It's sad because people are hurting and even those who seem to have a particular mission inadvertently politicizing their mission, but a mission nonetheless to reduce opioids at all costs are really coming from a place of pain of grieving from their own yep. personal losses. But in doing so, they're taking their own anecdotal experiences and trying to formalize that into clinical policy, which is odd that it's allowed to permeate in such a manner when so few individuals are doing so. But that's kind of where the 2016 CDC guidelines arose out of. It uh, arose out of policy from personal experiences. So now, Take us from 2016 to the present. What happened? Um, so first, I want to comment on what you said, if that's okay. That to me is one of the saddest parts of this entire thing. Yeah. Is they exploited the grief of parents who um, their children died of overdose and or suicide with addiction. And they were actually told by Kaladni and Menda, they were told by these group of people this is the way to fix it. This is the way to make it so no other parent has to go through what you did. This is the way to fix it so that no other child has to die. This is it. We need to go after prescription paid medication. And we know that this is, this is what happened because you see their, um, their rallies and you read their minutes and, and, and you look at the FDA hearings, all of these parents are there sobbing and I can't imagine losing a kid. And yeah. I don't blame them, but I blame the people who exploited their grief because all it did is make more parents lose their children. Um, it, it's really sad. It uh, really is. It's awful. So 
Um, in 2017, Senator McGaskill, I think she's in Missouri, I think she was in Missouri, opened an investigation into pharmaceutical companies, opioid makers, and I think things with pre-authorization and other just things they thought were shady. They investigated subsist, um, insist, uh, which is a, a list, um, it's a fentanyl, prescription fentanyl pro product. Um, and, and that led to a hearing in 2017 where they went over this information. At this hearing, you have Adrienne Fugue Berman, who is a prop member. She runs, um, she founded Farmed Out, which their entire mission is to um, like push for transparency with pharmaceutical companies and organizations and things like that. Uh, she's been very vocal. Um, she was very, very vocal back then about the delay of the guidelines being because they were funded uh, to be delayed. And she was at this hearing and McGaskill's talking about opioids. It's here that she said her 84 year old mother died. She believes she was addicted to opioids. She lied about her pain. That's what McGaskill said. And then Adrian Fugberman at the end said, I'm gonna tell you what you need to do. It's not just pharmaceutical companies by themselves. There are fake pain organizations. She called, I guess, astroturf organizations is what they called it. Um, Kaladi has said that since then, where they said they're just fake organizations created for opioid lobby. And she said, you really need to investigate them. And so she did. Because of that, McGaskill investigated, far, same thing. Pharmaceutical companies, pain organizations, they investigated like American Pain Society, US Pain, AAPM, like all the big names um, to see funding. And I have to say the interesting thing that I had just found yesterday was that um, two huge donors, like people who gave a lot of money to McGaskill's campaign in 2018, were law firms and this is how it happened. So one law firm gave a million that year, one law firm gave 700,000. And then these people turned around and used the investigation to make a lot of money by suing these organizations and pharmaceutical companies. So you have people who are paying senators to do investigations for litigation narrative. And it's comical actually, because some of the groups, like one of the groups that they named they took $15,000 over the course of 10 years and they were investigated from that for that. But you have people giving millions to these senators and campaign donations uh, and, and they're never investigated. And, and the other thing I definitely don't wanna miss is that names that you see speaking about all of this from 2008 or nine, they're expert witnesses in litigation. Right, so they're making like Andrew Kaladi made five hundred thousand dollars just um, in the Johnson and Johnson trial in two thousand nineteen. You have Jane Valentine, who has been working for litigation for years, um, Anna Lemke, uh, Lewis Nelson, all of the big names make. You know, they really do make millions. And the interesting thing is, they didn't even have to. They never said it. Like they don't disclose that information when they worked on the CDC guidelines. And they acted like it wasn't even a conflict, that it was unbiased. It didn't matter that they're being paid to push forth a narrative. It was considered not a conflict of interest. And then Andrew Kalodny and, and Caleb Alexander, who's another one 
who's an expert witness in 2018, not only did they not disclose they were expert witnesses, they turned around and did a study investigation on all the organizations who commented against the CDC guidelines to see how many of them had pharmaceutical funding. And as you can see, this is this was their entire, this was this is how they did it. Now, once do you see any of them addressing the actual concerns of organizations yeah. ever? They just don't. You just see them going after the organizations like an ad hominem attack, really. So McGaskill's um, report came out in 2018. Um, I think she also did it to win re-election. She didn't win re-election. But then in 2019, um, so you know, Baucus and Grassley were the ones who did the 2012 investigation. Right. Um, in 2019, the senators who were now doing it were Wyden, um, and I can't think of the other one. Uh, so I think it was Orrin Hatch took his place. So they make this announcement, Wyden did, that he is going to extend and open back up this investigation where the report was never uh, put out there in 2012. He's going to investigate pain organizations, pharmaceutical funding, blah, blah, blah. He did that. He released it last year. It was a big thing in 2000 or two years ago in 2020. And one interesting thing is at the end of this report, he said that one of his suggestions is all nonprofits. All nonprofits need to release the information of who their donors are, who's giving them their money. Uh, they can't say anonymous. They have to say who who is doing it. Now, this was just a suggestion, but I'm all for that, Jay, because if you look at people like Shatterproof and Gary Mendel in 2017, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, he took from pharmaceutical companies, including Indivier, who makes a pro an opioid product. Um, he took from Indivier, he took from Pacira, he took from Alchemist, he took from Adapt Pharma. It's the only year I could find he listed his donors, but they're never investigated. So I'm all for what Wyden suggested. I would love for these organizations, for Rummler. So from Rummler Hope is the fiscal sponsor of Prop. So it's all very secretive. She does not disclose who our donors are. We don't know who's giving them money. They claim they never take from pharma, but I don't know if that's true because we have no way of finding out. So that happened in 2020. Um, and then as we know, the CDC guidelines, they've been working on uh, reworking them for the past year and a half or so. The original draft was released in July of last year. Um, and it was pretty bad. It was worse than the original. It was expanded, not really uh, rewritten to include acute pain. Uh, the 50 MME was written in there. It was just, I mean, it was bad. And then, um, you know, there was a meeting and, and everyone commented and on their opioid work group, you have two pain advocates, Kate Nicholson and Beth Darnell. And um, if you look at the opioid work group report, you'll see that they really fought hard for pain patients. They really did. Um, and then the updated version came out a week or two ago. Berman, Andrew Kaladny, Lewis Nelson going to media and saying the entire reason these guidelines are being updated and the, the reason why they were softened is due to industry funding. Same, same narrative, same narrative. So 
that's basically where we are now. It's interesting. And, and first off, thank you so much for that detailed analysis of the entire timeline from how the opioid epidemic had its origins really in 27, 28, and now in 2011 to where it is now. It really escalated very quickly and through distinctly political and lobbying means. What I find is very interesting is that there's only a few small individual groups that are really advocating, but advocating so loudly for the reduction of opioids, trying to discredit pain organizations. But majority of the people with chronic pain and substance use dependency are not having their voices heard. So it's almost where you have a very small minority talking over a very large majority individual groups. And it no longer becomes about healthcare, but about almost class warfare in the political ranks. Yes, that's accurate. So what can we do about this? So I think my opinion is we need to fight with facts. We need to fight with information. Uh, We do need our stories out there, but up till recently, media wasn't even willing to discuss our stories. But as we tell our stories, we also need to fight with facts. We need to show them what they've done. We need to expose the organizations who are industry funded, who are being paid by pharmaceutical companies, because if you look at it, you know, there's this there's this new industry they created that uh, we call the opioid elimination industry. And we have a lot of different groups who stood to benefit from this. You have people like Prop who uh, they're making, you know, all together, they're gonna bring our country billions and billions of dollars to, through opioid litigation. You have what we call the interventional pain industry. That's people like who put in spinal cord stimulators and epidural steroid infections. They really stood to gain from opioid elimination because if people don't get opioids, they know they're going to be desperate and they'll try this other stuff, right? So you have them too. You have addiction organizations who definitely stand to gain a lot. They'll get a lot of litigation money. And you also have pharmaceutical companies who stand to gain a lot, like Indivier and Pastira, anything that's, as long as it's called opioid sparing, that's it. Their, their drugs are going to be pushed and their procedures are, are going to be pushed. So we need to expose that. I really want to press our government and Senate to open an investigation into the funding of all of this. Just look at it. I mean, Chad, Dr. Chad Colas, he's a palliative care doctor. Um, he's on the AMA Opioid Task Force, and he's a phenomenal advocate. And he wrote two great pieces that he put on Palamed about the consequences of this. And the other was about Roger Chow and his conflict of interest, Jay, like he was involved in every step of the CDC guidelines and the fact that he's allowed um, to still be involved is, is nuts to me. But when we comment on the CDC guidelines, we need to use facts. We need to tell them um, very specifically what we want them to do. um, And hopefully it will make a difference. Yeah, I feel like we're moving in the right direction, even though the cost of moving that direction was just horrific with the number of overdose deaths. But I feel optimistic. I feel that, as you had mentioned, the facts will bear out 
from yeah. your perspective in dealing with chronic pain patients and serving as an advocate, are you starting to see some positive stories? Is, is there a positive movement, even if it's just so slight? I mean, I wish I can say that it seems positive. Um, I, I do feel like media a little bit is starting to, to turn and, and discuss um, the situation. There was one media outlet who even said the CDC guidelines led to increased death and overdose. So I think that is positive. You know, I don't think that anything can change until several things happen. Uh, when the CDC wrote the guidelines in 2016, they, they, they funded with a lot of money implementing these guidelines through different means. And, and that includes the 90 MNE. It was used in a lot of like risk score algorithms that both target patients and providers. Uh, we know for a fact they were used in at least one case that we saw. Uh, so so for, the C for anything to change, the first thing that needs to happen is the CDC is going to have to also fund de-implementing them. Like we need to know what are they going to do to take them out where they put them in? Are they going to get payers to remove it? Are they going to get state laws to be, um, you know, taken back? Like what are they going to do to fix this? And then the other part of it is um, doctors. Like, you know, when I first got into this with Claudia, we were like, what is wrong with doctors? Why, why do they not think pain patients are really in pain? I don't blame doctors. I don't, I, I don't blame them at all because the DEA has basically gone rogue. So what is the CDC going to do? What is our government going to do to rein in the DEA? Are they, are they going to still go after doctors if they prescribe over a certain threshold or, or what? So those things have to happen. I do think it's positive that media has started to talk more about pain, pain patients. Dr. Cortez is working on a study into suicides after um, forced taper or forced cutoff. I think that will be positive, well, not positive, but it can have a positive effect once it comes out. Yeah, I mean, I see doctors are starting to speak out a little more. I just, um, I think we, you know, we've joined a little bit with harm reduction. That's another thing these people did is they, they pit pain patients against people with addiction very early on. Yeah, so, so you, yeah, you have pain patients who are like, we don't get our medication because of what you did. And then you have people with addiction who are like, you guys are all just drug seeking and you're the reason why so much of us are dead. And um, so we, you know, that was, I think, done by design. So now we've kind of joined because really both groups are fighting the same yeah. battle against this completely failed more on drugs. So I do think that's positive. I mean, time will tell if the CDC is serious by what they do with the information and if doctors, you know, what, what our country's gonna do to rein in the DEA or medical boards so that doctors feel like they can prescribe. Certainly you're talking about a lot of institutions with an immense amount of institutional decay and yeah. change is not gonna happen anytime soon unless people like you are leading the force. And I commend you, I commend Claudia, the Doctor Patient Forum for what you're doing, such a grassroots organization with an immense positive influence on really the voiceless chronic pain patients and substitute dependency patients. It, it's, it's amazing what you've accomplished. And I, I'm so proud to just be a part of your journey. And I hope that we can continue to 
grow and see future successes. Before I let you go, I'd like you to kind of provide ways for the listening audience to get in touch with you, to uh, reach out and share their stories with you, because very few people are as adept as you are in taking an experience and using it as a force for good. And I really want people to be able to understand that you are an accessible person. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I appreciate the compliment. I just hope what we're doing does make a difference. Um, so the Dr. Patient Forum has a website, the drpatientforum.com. On that website, they could submit comments. People could um, contact us that way. I do ask that you guys look at um, the content. We have a debunking lies section there, things that can really come in handy when discussing the different aspects of their false narrative. I'm on Twitter. I, I'm, we're on Facebook, a national don't punish pain rally page. Also, each state has their own page, their own don't punish pain rally page. I'm, I don't spend as much time on Facebook as Twitter. On Twitter, my Twitter handle is ibdgirl76. Um, and then my partner in crime who does all the research with me is Carrie Judy. Her Twitter handle is life is art. Um, she's phenomenal. We work hand in hand basically all day, every day researching this. Um, and yeah, find us there. Send me a private message. Send me a direct message. Um, you know, we can't really do a whole lot right now to get medication for people to get their medication back. Uh, but we can listen to their stories. We can keep track of their stories. There are other ways we can report them. Um, and the other thing I definitely wanna say is if, if you've been um, cut off your medication or forced tapered or treated like this, always file a complaint. People don't often follow through with that and I understand, but always file a complaint with the medical board, with the hospital, with the practice. You ha they have to have it on record and, and contact your legislators, contact your local legislators, tell them what's happening, tell them your story. Um, and then, you know, we're gonna uh, put up some bullet points for comments, suggestions for comments for the updated CDC guideline. Um, so I suggest definitely making comments. And once you write out your comments, I also suggest sending it to your legislators. Like you have to speak up. I know it's hard especially when we're sick and in pain. But if we don't speak up and if we don't file these complaints, they, they'll never know what's happening. You're right, Bev. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your advice. And I hope that everybody who's made it this far into the podcast does follow through on her advice, filing complaints, sharing stories, and reaching out to their representatives and senators. It does make a difference, even if it's a small one. Small differences in aggregate make a big difference. Thank you so much, Jay. I've enjoyed uh, talking to you. I love your podcast. I listen to them all the time. So thank you for your advocacy also.